Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You're not even a man. You're like an early draft of a man, where they just sketched out a giant mangled skeleton, but they didn't have time to add details like pigment or self-respect. The great has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man! Good man! They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Just a very bad wizard. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, the Cornell English Department voted to change their name to the Department of Literatures in English. What are you going to change the psychology department name to? I, I genuinely had no idea until you told me that the English Department had changed their name. And I'm so confused. Like, I'm so, like, I have the article pulled up right now. I, I'll... Liter- what did they do? Ad- they added the word literature, plural? Literatures. It's the Department of Literatures, literatures in English. Literatures in English. I See, here I thought literature was already plural. So, <laughs> that's what I the thought. Answer is, the answer is the psychology department just voted to keep the name psychology department, so we're not going anywhere. Well, but maybe, maybe we're racist. <laughs> The, it would mark a distinct change to the department's branding, helping to eliminate what Dep- Director of Undergraduate Studies Prof. Kate McCullough English said was the conflation of English as a nationality and English as a language. This is the part that I'm very confused about. We, could, we should talk briefly about like the fact that this is part of a larger anti-racism right. Uh, that's what it, the primary motivation. But at least right. according to this director of undergraduate studies, the idea is that Cornell students thought that English meant that you only studied British literature. So you only studied like, like England, like, yeah, Jane like England Austen and, and like William Makepeace Thackeray and <laughs> Bronte sisters. <laughs> the, is that the idea? That 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 was being confused before. I mean, like, may, like that might actually be true, which would make me sad about like the state of high school education. But but it's clearly not. <laughs> but right? does this does does this like were they looking at the catalog and going like fuck this? Like I don't want to study this stuff from England. No, no, right. no, it's literature. Is I don't want to read oh. fucking Dickens again. Jesus yeah. Christ! I'm not. Re- you can't make me read like the Tale of Two Cities again. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I don't know, man. I like like with all these things, I'm sure there are good intentions that went into it. And it and in that article that you linked, which we'll put a link to, it's you know, it's the faculty members of color introduced the proposal. 75% of the whites agreed, and then they had a vote. <laughs> the and, 75% of the whites? <laughs> yeah. Is, is that is that reported in the essay? I, I think so. It says yeah. no, it says by the time we were ready to officially take it to the department as a whole, we had over 75% of the faculty signed on. Uh, but not necessarily the whites. 
Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I assume they were all, except for these two. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it says it that's was right. the, the decision to demand such a change was spurred by the summer's resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement following George Floyd's death. Explain to me the connection between changing well, the English department name to police reform, police violence, um, and criminal justice reform. Explain to me what the connection is, or really what the connection is even involving race. Um, the connection is as follows, and this is making no uh, claim about the character of the individuals that yeah. I am uh, about to describe. It, the connection is if we uh, add a word into the title of our department, we don't have to think as much about the criminal justice system <laughs> because we've just done something. And we put out a press release saying that we did something. And and this was a direct, because it was a direct response to the president's uh, desire for Cornell to be less racist. Oh, is, is that what it, by I definition, didn't... it was. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This is how things work now. This is how things work. So here's a quote. Faculty around the country, not just faculty of color, but faculty in general, began to look at the institution to see how we can advance a discourse that challenges structural forms of racism, which get reproduced in students and in teaching over and over again. Um, but what you're suggesting is, no, they didn't actually want to look at st the structural problems with the institution. They wanted yeah. to just do something uh, symbolic. <laughs> Yeah, I and well, and silly. Uh, uh, Levine said of her stance, "This isn't just us doing a symbolic gesture, so that defeats that defeats the argument." <laughs> but no, but I, look, it, yeah. I, here's the thing: you and I have even disagreed about some of these gestures. Like when we had when we talked about um, like the the Redskins and the Braves and stuff like that, where where I'm I'm of the opinion or. I've traditionally been of the opinion that like, what does it take? Just change it. Even if, even if only like five people are upset about it, this one is just, it's not that I think that this, I'm not making some alt-right argument about like, this has gone too far. It's just that I don't get how this in any way addresses what it says it's addressing. And, and that's, what's frustrating to me about it, that anybody thinks that they've done something. And yeah, it's like directly that, that they now feel like they've done something is a feeling that I don't think they should have, like, you know? Yeah, right, exactly, that this is some sort of achievement, this is progress, that this right. is actually addressing the, the real structural problems of racism in this country. And yeah, absolutely, like, I think that's the problem with it. Like, A, it's, it's I'm sure, like, a huge waste of everybody's time to have to debate something like this something this right. inconsequential. But but second, it is what you say. It's the real issue here is that you feel like you've done something and so you're not turning to the actual hard problems, the real yeah. tough problems. Yeah. Of this is patting ourselves on the back like a bunch of people who already agree that racism is bad, making this effort to, to take action that is that keeps our hands clean. And... and right. I, I, yeah, I don't, right. You know, again, not to malign these these people, but I think there's two different theories of the psychology of what's going on when you do things like this, and I think that might be this the sense of the source of tension, at least when I think about this, like because I think to myself, well, how could re otherwise reasonable people think that this is something important? Mm -hmm. And I think it is. On the one hand, you have people who think if we make these little changes, 
it will motivate, it will educate, it will make people aware of like the bigger problems. And this might make it more likely to see th things like you're talking about, like the police reform and stuff like that. And then there's people like you and I, I guess, who might be a little more cynical, who just think that that in doing this, what we've done is is essentially the white liberal version of thoughts and prayers. Yes, right? exactly. This is the white liberal version of <laughs> thoughts and prayers. I think so... There is another quote from McAuliffe who says, in part, this is a result of an ongoing shift in the literary study in this department and others across the country to focus on a broader reach of literature. I guess the Which, idea- That's he, fine, right? Like, that's absolutely I mean, yeah, fine. Yeah, like yeah. put more authors uh, who are, you know, not the Bronte sisters on, on, right. on the syllabus. Yes, absolutely. But, but that just seems completely, I don't know if I'm being naive, Completely independent of whether you call it the Department of Literatures in English or the Department of English, like it's they're still you're still reading stuff that's in English and the, the authors that you want to include are still writing in English. And so that's just yeah. a question of hiring more faculty who are experts in those fields or who are interested in teaching <laughs> right. those authors and who know something about them and how to incorporate that into their syllabi. That's the thing, but, right? That's actually right. meaningful. The name and change. That's, it's that the time spent here is time that can be credited to you so that you don't have to spend like the countless hours it takes to make the changes like hiring more faculty of color. Because that's what actually, those are like the tireless committee, like work that people have to do to form committees and to like recruit people. And like, that's the hard work. I mean, they would argue yeah. we're doing that too, I'm sure, you know, yeah. but yeah. the... Uh, the question is why even why divert your efforts? I'm sure there will be a back like a stupid backlash to this. Certainly, who's the audience? Like, who is the audience for this name change? Is it really yeah. like like students applying to the department, or is it students here who are already wanting, just deciding to be a, a, an English major or not? Or like, I'm I'm not quite sure who needed to hear a yeah. different title for the English department. Yeah, or how this is a structural. To me, the part that's uh, like they pluralize literatures, but by keeping the word English singular, I think that they are uh, failing to appreciate <laughs> that there are very different kinds of Englishes. So if there were the departments of literatures in right. Englishes, then I would then I would feel like a victory had been. The, the next police shooting, they can add oh, the you know Englishes. <laughs> if there's another police shooting, I'm officially changing our name to Barry's Bad's Wizards. <laughs> I don't know why that matters, but it feels right. <laughs> we we are trying to address the structural problems in this country um, for people of color. <laughs> Speaking of things that you find it hard to understand how otherwise reasonable people <laughs> could, could believe, we have a couple of things in store for you today, um, both from my field, philosophy. Um, I I was saying earlier that we've been mostly focused on like bullshit psychology, I think. And in the beginning of the podcast, you know, for early days, first few years, we were mo more focused on the ways in which philosophy could be ridiculous and making fun of that. Lately, we've taken more of a, taken more of the piss out of psychology. So it's right. time to address that structural inequality and <laughs> consider... Uh, two debates in philosophy that spell doom for my field and 
beyond. Yeah, okay. And and these the <laughs> what you call them two debates is what actually makes me genuinely concerned about your field because this would be normally um, we normally it's easy to say okay this is an intro segment and this is a main segment because you know like we're kind of kind of mocking one uh, in an intro segment like a like a, a one off paper and then in the regular segment we. <laughs> We discuss something that's closer to reasonable literature. But this is, these aren't one-off papers. Right. These are uh, literatures. The, these are li- these are like, these are people responding to people responding to people now in a way that I remember when we were talking about the zombie problem. So, <laughs> so okay. So the first, let's talk about the first debate. Uh, so well, I so, read the response before the original paper. Yeah. Um, so the paper, so there's the, there's the first paper, which is called Sideways Music by... Um, Ned Marcosian, and the second paper is by Zachary Fer- Ferguson, who's a master's student. Um, this is his zombie paper, by the way. Like my zombie paper, I wrote in my first year as a philosophy graduate student. I feel like this is Zachary Ferguson's. Uh, <laughs> a song turned sideways would sound as sweet. So, like, just to give the listeners uh, a sense of what's at stake here, who wins this debate? like bears on whether Einstein was right <laughs> and the theory of special general rel- and general relativity were right. uh, a- were accurate. <laughs> like that's what's at stake in this debate. So Marcosian in his paper Sideways Music wants to argue against the space-time thesis. Um, right. And the space-time thesis is defined by Marcosian as... Um, The universe is spread out in four symmetrical and similar dimensions, each one orthogonal to each other, which together make up an isotropic four-dimensional manifold appropriately called space-time. Humans tend to perceive one dimension, the one we call time, as different from the others in various ways, but in reality, no one of the dimensions is intrinsically different from any of the others. So that's what he refers to as the space-time thesis and... I don't know. We can talk about whether that's an accurate one paragraph description of it. Right. I don't. Right. I don't know. <clears throat> the um, I, at some point, at some point, one of them says um, that that this doesn't seem to be consistent with the way physicists actually think about space time. But then they say, but it doesn't. But it doesn't matter for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Why would that matter? <laughs> So, <laughs> oh yeah, so, sorry, I, I get the general idea, one. right? Which is that you, yeah. space and time are on a continuum. We happen to see the world as if, like, time was something ontologically different than space, yeah. but that's not the way it really is when you're really looking at the universe. And right. um, he says, "Well, that can't be right because if we assume, and he thinks it's a pretty like." uncontroversial assumption that aesthetic realism is true, which is the view that, you know, there is objective beauty in the world. There are that, that works of art, beautiful works of art have intrinsic value that is independent of our ability to appreciate it. So like, let's say Van Gogh's paintings, which, you know, didn't receive much attention, um, let's say the world just ended before anybody gave a shit about his paintings, they would still be intrinsically valuable even if they were unappreciated by us. 
So it's a, it's a realism about the value of works of art. And then he says, well, here's the thing. You can rotate things in space, like paintings, for example, um, Starry Night. You can rotate in space. You can rotate at 90 degrees, and you can still appreciate, or, or it still has intrinsic value. It's not that right. you can appreciate it. It still has intrinsic value, which you could identify if you turned your head to the side. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think I... Right. <laughs> But but, like, but if you yeah. but then but look at something like music, um, and then try to imagine doing uh, rotating a piece of music in time, and if you do that, if you turn a, a piece of music sideways, it becomes just a cacophony of notes, and right. it loses its that would no longer be intrinsically valuable. So that's uh, like a counterexample to to the space time thesis, which holds <laughs> that there is no real distinction, ontological distinction between space and time, but there has to be because if you turned a song sideways in time, it would lose its intrinsic value. But we know that songs have intrinsic value. So, yes. So that's, so, as far as I can tell, the argument. I, uh, <laughs> so, there's so much. <laughs> where, okay. where to begin? <laughs> where to begin? Like, we're going to have to come back to... Um, to the aesthetic realism uh, debate, but but like fine for now for for now let's set that set that aside. Um, the rotating of a song ninety degrees. So he imagines Nina Simone playing seven notes. This is Marcosian um, on a piano, and he says, "For the I think there's a phrase there for the more top topologically minded of us." <laughs> Like, imagine, and then he imagines sort of uh, like that string of notes being like a line and you are uh, rotating that line on its axis so that from one perspective, it's all flattened. So now it's seven notes played at the same time is, a, is cacophonous. And that cacophony can't be intrinsically beautiful. So therefore, since things have intrinsic beauty, um, rotating them shouldn't matter Therefore, Einstein is wrong. Yeah. Props to the creativity of, of this, but I cannot, I cannot tell if Marcosian genuinely thinks that playing seven Nina Simone notes all at the same time says anything, and, like, and noting that they're cacophonous, says anything about the nature of fabric of space-time. The, logic, like, the laws of the universe. An analysis, Tamler, analysis. Yeah, sorry, I meant to say this. Analysis is a really good, it's like a top philosophy journal. This is yeah. a top 10 general journal that specializes in short papers that make really sharp, analytically rigorous arguments and then just doesn't waste your time. Like it just, you're, right. it's, they're short and sweet and they're making an argument and, <laughs> or a, an objection to another argument and they're done. Right. Which, you know, right. even though I think a lot of their articles are like this, where it's like, I can't fucking believe that anybody would like care about this or think that it was worthwhile. I do appreciate just the, you know, the, <laughs> like yeah. short and sweet, no wasted, no bullshit. Like get, get your theory out there and go home. I, I especially appreciate the attempts at uh, helping us understand the arguments by <laughs> in the original Marcosian paper. He has like a like a fake little piece of art that he rotates on its side. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> to show us, see, it's largely unaffected. And uh, and in the response uh, by Zach Ferguson, he he actually has this seven note Nina Simone melody titled Figure One, Beautiful Melody. And then he has those notes all stacked together. Figure two, cacophonous racket. Yes. But here's, okay, here's my serious question. Um, How do you have the balls uh, to challenge? <laughs> like, like, like a physicist of the stature of Einstein with, can you, with this? With can like you a imagine any, paper? so no, taking it a little bit seriously, um, the aesthetic um, realism argument that this all hinges on, right? Because if aesthetic realism falls, then all of this falls and we know nothing about space-time. Um, the argument that Marcosian uses and that Ferguson seems to in, uh, agree with is, yeah, sure, when you take a Dali painting you turn on its side, that doesn't change its intrinsic value. It just changes your perception of it. And um, so, like, you might have to tilt your head in order to to like really see the beauty in it, but that doesn't mean the beauty's changed. Right. Why is it so obvious that playing the seven notes at once isn't just an auditory version of like? Well, that's the Ferguson argument, right? Uh, no, for I think Ferguson's argument is that um, even if you uh, rotate um, musical notes spatially it becomes cacophonous. Yes, that's so true. So he calls a horizontal music. So he says, so he says, you're, he, he wants to defeat Marcosian's argument by saying, you think that this has placed time in this special category, but look, I can, I can achieve the same cacophony by having those seven notes played by seven different pianos at seven different physical distances yeah. so that they all arrive at the listener's ear at the exact same time, therefore rendering it cacophonous, therefore... Your argument says nothing special about time. It's just like yes. it could just be the same image. But so that's part of it. That's one half of it. The other half that I was referring to is that he says, look, you maybe turning a Dolly painting 90 degrees sideways doesn't affect its intrinsic value. But if you turned it and made it face the wall the whole time, it would lose its intrinsic value because it would be nobody could see nobody could see it. <laughs> Right? But wait, I, isn't that what mind independence is? Like nobody has to see it. No, no, no. But like, like if the the painting itself is like against <coughs> the wall, so oh, I, there's yeah. a difference between right, right, like right. Yeah, nobody yeah. appreciating a Van Gogh painting that they can see <laughs> versus just a painting that's just nailed to a wall, like you know, <laughs> yeah, that, that's like, like impossible to even see in the first place. <laughs> Then, it, it, that's a different, yeah. That's a different work of art. <laughs> yeah, go. that's a, and, back, and it's less of, intrinsically the, valuable. So, like, there's nothing special about space here. I I feel like uh, you've unwittingly you've unwittingly created a new kind of art that I'm going to call the back of a masterpiece. <laughs> so I'm just going to nail nail canvases to the wall and be like, you know what's on the other side? A fucking masterpiece. <laughs> no, nope, you can't look. Don't look. It would ruin it. Yeah, and that okay. has aesthetic value. So then that means that quantum physics is wrong. But but uh, yeah, but um, but back to the seriousness of this this scholarship. Um, Ferguson does seem to accept that the cacophonous cluster chord really is objectively aesthetically like ugly. Mm -hmm. But I just don't i I don't get how. There's nothing it's special like about not space. Like the same arguments you make about time, you can make about space both ways. No, no, no. Yeah, I get that. I get that. 
it's just that the, in order to get there, like this is the part that I'm having a problem with. Yeah. They think that you can rotate works of art into this like, you know, in weird angles and still it, it's still objectively aesthetically pleasing. Um, even though I look at the rotated work and I think it's ugly, they say, but yeah, but that's, that's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the intrinsic beauty of it. Right. Why, why is playing all of the notes at the same time destroying the intrinsic beauty of it? Like, aren't there, couldn't you just conceive of a creature who can hear seven notes at the same time and appreciate that? Like, isn't it conceivable that, that it's not lost its aesthetic beauty? Yeah, I see what you're saying. This is the confusing part of like aesthetic realism. Even though it doesn't depend on like actual people appreciating it something at a certain time, I think any work of art has to take into account the fact that human beings as they are, that's what the work of art is targeted for. And so that is part of the intrinsic aesthetic value is that it's made for human beings. Now, maybe that they can't appreciate it because they're Philistines, but that doesn't, but I think that, you know, when Van Gogh is painting, he is painting for other human beings. And so I think there is some sort of necessary connection between the target of the art form. Now I, I say this not being all that familiar with debate, but that's what I think is going on here. And in fact, actually, um, Ferguson says, now that I remember, <clears throat> he says, Marcosian anticipates that the space-time theorist, the one who believes in the orthogonal four dimensions, The one who just will equal. say, yeah, well, all yeah. things being equal, I'll go with Einstein. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, will likely reject premise two, which is that turning a piece of music sideways does destroy its intrinsic value, by arguing that rotating music in time does not affect its aesthetic value although human consciousness is such that we are not good at perceiving it. Recent attempts to do this include, and then he lists two papers, so that <laughs> the cottage industry is growing. Like, there's already been two attempts at, like, refuting Marcosian's argument. No, this uh, could God. be the next zombie, you know. Like, you know. <laughs> really? Could? We got to get in on the ground up. But yeah. I agree with the conclusions of these arguments, but they both appeal to fantastical thought experiments that posit something extraordinary about the hearer, a perjuring time traveler and a higher dimensional being. <laughs> Luckily for the <laughs> a perjuring time traveler, like what? perduring, perduring, P E R D. Oh, I like, thought it was a time traveler who lies under oath. <laughs> <laughs> you can't trust them, and a higher dimensional being. Luckily for the space time theorist, it is possible to refute premise two by using a simple spatial analogy. So then he goes on to give his spatial analogy. Um, Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that he doesn't want to go to weird thought experiments to show that, like, (laughs) sideways music is... That seems like the wrong way to object to this, to say, no, actually, sideways music is intrinsically valuable because, like, of a time traveler. I I didn't look up those articles, but I can only imagine. Well, we're just going to get accused of strawmanning what is a deep, rich literature that has already answered our... uh, our, but our can, attempt. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Well, so I want to talk just for a second about what I think is like seriously fucked up about just the fact that this debate can exist. You know, you know my thoughts or my worries about psychology that there's something fundamentally like at root wrong with the methodology, and I and I feel like any methodology that could that could use this to undermine a <coughs> A theory, you know, a theory that makes predictions, an empirical theory that makes predictions that we have to use in order to like launch rocket ships 
um, yeah. to like the, the, the methodology that would say no, but Einstein never considered like the intrinsic value of music would be lost if it was turned sideways in time. Like there's something like fundamentally fucked up about. Yeah. It doesn't, it seems to, um, it clearly doesn't pass a sniff test. If like, if you, what you're arguing is for an empirical theory of the structure of the universe, like this doesn't pass a sniff test. What's disturbing to me is that nobody seems to be applying the sniff test to any of this. It is, it is like a circle jerk of, of, fake logical problems when since when i mean maybe it's always been this way but like if what you're setting out to do is provide evidence against this empirical theory don't you think as like an editor or as a reviewer you would say dude this doesn't even like it genuinely does not pass the sniff test for even conceivably telling us anything about how the universe works or do they do they actually think? Maybe that's what I'm not getting. Does Marcosian actually think that his sideways music says something about the universe? And says so, yeah, says that we should be more skeptical of the space-time theory as he understands yeah. it in favor of a different theory that sees time as ontologically separate. I mean, I yeah, I don't know. Like I I can't get in his mind. And to tackle it on its own terms, which is what Zach Ferguson does, and God bless this kid. He's He's yeah. a master's student that um, I, he, I, I looked him up. He's like second year in, a, in an MA program in philosophy. He got a publication in uh, in analysis, which is really impressive and fine. Like all of like, I don't blame him <laughs> yeah. for doing it. Like I said, this was me no. it, um, yeah. when I wrote a paper about zombies, but. I do think it's almost a mistake to just address these papers and take for granted these kinds of assumptions. I'm trying my best to think of an, you know, I'm not a mathematician, obviously, like, but I do know that there are branches of mathematics that start with um, crazy assumptions and then work out the 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 sort of conclusions um, that might follow from those crazy assumptions in a way that you know, in fact, probably most mathematics is, is like that, right? Like they're looking for the consistency of these systems that may or may not have any instantiation in the physical world or like, you know, parallel lines meet in, in the distance. Like it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter. And they're doing that. They're doing that as an exercise in seeing where the numbers take them. And my most charitable reading of this is let's just see where our our ability to do conceptual analysis using language takes us like, Hey, it might take us here. I just can't get like, th there really is an, a tacit or if not explicit claim that something real is being said about the world. reality as we know it. And, <laughs> yeah. and that's what I can't like. Um, I, yeah. I don't want. I don't want to let them just sit in their corner and do this. And here's my other fear: is I, everything you said about Zach Ferguson, I agree with. If, if there is a hero to this story, it's it's <laughs> Zach Ferguson because he's actually on his own turn on Marcosian's own terms refuting. He says, "Like I don't know anything about whatever space time, but like your argument is wrong um, because it's just flawed in this way." But um, but my fear is that the the pressure to publish is. Um, just leads people in like further and further into weird, weird directions and people lose sight of 
Like I yeah. think what we were saying with the zombies, you just lose sight of what you're supposed to be doing in the first place. Yeah. I mean, look, the pressure to publish and the effect that has on the quality of research is not exclusive to philosophy. That's definitely no, not at not. all. Um, that is something that affects all fields, including psychology in a big way as well. Um, but that's a problem. And I think, like I say, I think it's a methodological problem that there's something that makes like metaphysics like this okay. And so once it's established as okay, and nobody's questioning the assumptions behind this, this method of once you do that, then it's like, well, it's a literature is established. It's enough that somebody published something yeah. on it. That's enough to like enter that debate and respond to it and come up with counterexamples. And then you're off to the races with that. Right. Um, so here's, what, here's where I, my, my concern about philosophy starts to diverge from my concern about psychology in, in that. And I think we're going to have to revisit our, which, which fields more fucked. Yeah. Um, because, all of the things uh, like the pressure to publish and the poor research and the shoddy practices, all of those things are true in, in psychology, but there is a semblance of, of sort of reforms and guidelines that a lot of people can agree on that would at least eliminate many of the flaws in current research. Now you might hold that there are deep, deep flaws that can't be eliminated, but, but there are still recipes to eliminate a lot of the, like obvious flaws that we've been doing for the past few years. And in this case, like, I'm not sure what the fix for the methodology is other than to say, um, do, like do work that has a better shot at being true. But, <laughs> right. but, but I, I, it's, it seems more like modern art, like where, where this has taken us is into the inability to distinguish parody, you know, from, from, you know, yeah. like this is, this is the signed urinal. Right. Which which is funny because that's what people think about continental philosophy. But I yeah. think that same critique applies to a lot of analytic philosophy too, including what we're going to talk about in the second segment. But the <laughs> uh, that that it is almost like you have to take a postmodern kind yeah. of standpoint, maybe even like critical theory approach. And 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 the part of the problem <laughs> is like there's no agreed upon assumptions of what's worth investigating or what, right. you know, like what would count, like this is an a priori argument. So, you know, uh, they Dude. might be unimpressed with us saying, well, look, there's all this empirical research that is behind the space-time thesis, whereas this is, you know, this is just you uh, imagining yeah, yeah, like the, something. Right, like, like, the, <laughs> like the appropriately matched method is not like introspection, you know, it's like actual... Sorry, I'm holding this up to the camera for Tamler because even though I know he's seen it, I want to put this as the uh, cover art for this chapter because this has to be one of the least informative figures ever it's, printed in a journal. <laughs> it is yeah. Marcosian's normal art and sideways art. <laughs> and it's yeah. just literal rectangle with like little designs in it flipped to the side. And he labeled the axes S1, <laughs> S2. <laughs> I, this, can't, this can't not be parody. I can't. It's very funny. I'm glad you pointed out the absurdity of that because I kind of <laughs> glided over it, you know. It is brilliant. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, no, those two things are, they have the same intrinsic value. That one is sideways. <laughs> like, Actually, who's to say which one's sideways, Ned? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
Uh, they're both so beautiful and they're exactly as objectively beautiful. So, yeah. I would like to talk about the um, the aesthetic realism stuff at some point, like in a, in a yeah. real way, because because it does perplex me. I think what you were saying is exactly the thing that confuses me. Can I my read sense one, is that... The, this one quote, one way the yeah, proponent yeah. of the space-time thesis could resist the argument from sideways music. I love that, like, you know... He's imagining some, like, Einstein <laughs> proponent, like, oh, shit, like, I got to I gotta deal with, how am I going to deal with this? Is by denying the assumption that there is such a thing as intrinsic aesthetic value in the world. To me, this response is wildly implausible. Yeah. It seems obvious to me that the world contains both tremendous beauty and tremendous ugliness. But again, like, I think how he understands that claim. Uh, first of all, I don't think it's obvious by any stretch of the imagination. It's, like, it's crazy that he, like, it might, it's crazy that he thinks that the obviousness of it to him, because I'm fine with him thinking it's obvious, but it's, it's so weird to me to, to think that his feeling of how obvious it is, is like his ad admitted reason that his argument stands. Yes. I mean, he might say, look, I'm just, this is directed at people who agree with me about aesthetic yeah. realism. Um, and if, as he says, still, I do want to emphasize that I have shown that proponents of the space-time theorist must or even should. Did, that's funny. Yeah. Must or even should deny the aesthetic real deny aesthetic realism, then that is a big deal. I'll read that sentence again. <laughs> Still, I do want to emphasize that if I have shown that proponents of the space-time theorist must or even should deny aesthetic realism, then that is a big deal. I mean, it's it, it, this paper is anything before it's a big deal. <laughs> like and, there's and nothing like that this paper is less than it is. Like when a little kid asks you what the opposite of a big deal is, you just yeah. give them this paper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know it when you see it. Um, in the next paragraph, he says, another option for the space-time theorist is to accept that normal music has intrinsic aesthetic value and to maintain that sideways music does too. The proponent of the space-time thesis who takes this approach will explain our reaction to hearing sideways music by claiming that as a result of how human consciousness works, we are just not very good at perceiving the aesthetic value of sideways music. I, for one, do not find this response at all plausible, but this may well be simply an area where intuitions differ. In any case, I want to register that if this is the best response to my argument that is available to the space-time theorist, <laughs> fuck the math, by the way, yeah. then we have again uncovered a surprising and substantive commitment of those who endorse the space-time thesis. It's sort of like telling us how important <laughs> the thing is that he just told us in a way that is like intended to like almost make us like convince us that what he said is important in a way right. that I would be taught not to write that way. You could just show it. Don't tell it. Like if the reader thinks that it's persuasive and important, then that, then just say it. And the reader will think that. Right. Because this isn't responding to an objection. This is saying you could hold this. I find yeah. like that. That's the other, that's the response to the other objection too. I find holding that wildly implausible, but it would still just be a big deal to clarify that I'm committed to this and you're committed to this ridiculous, you know, assumption or intuition. Right. But again, that's like, that's metaphysics in a lot of cases. I, I remember in grad school, again, my first year, the same year I read all the Chalmers stuff, there was an argument by Peter Carruthers at Maryland about um, 
how the higher order thought theory of consciousness. Again, this is all a priori. There's, you know, there's maybe some empirical stuff sprinkled in, but it's not at the heart of what these theories of consciousness are. But what the the thing that really bothered me ethically was that he says, you know, the success of this art this argument, um, which again, 13 pages on like consciousness is that animals don't have consciousness. Therefore they can't feel pain. And there are a lot of people who are objecting to factory farms. Maybe they need to step back and reconsider that, you know? Right. So, right. you know, like it's, it's, it's in some yeah. ways worse than this because yeah. probably NASA isn't going to read this paper and like, reconfigure their next launching of um you know the, some mars mission or something <laughs> right, like right, that right 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 but yeah. but you know, and, and actually nobody's going to like that's not going to affect <laughs> factory farming either but just the idea that something yeah, yeah, but baked that into like, the claim is yeah the possibility that that could ha that like that that's the result yeah, not it, the yeah again it's this methodologically I don't know, uh, objectionable ethically objectionable way of approaching a topic like that yeah, I'm trying. I'm really trying hard to figure out what it is about these that bother bother me because yeah, you were pissed the, at this. Yeah, the the we've said many times. Like I'm a fan. I was more of a fan of analytic philosophy than you because, but like that's because I genuinely believe that there is something to the method that can get us to something true. And I'm trying to figure out where these are going so terribly wrong. And I think that they're just sloppy, sloppy premises. But. If you even say that, you're saying, well, which one is the sloppy premise? Like, is it the aesthetic realism? That's, you know, it's not totally implausible. Is it that turning a song sideways in time would be not intrinsically valuable? Well, maybe, but it, it just, it, it's more, it's, it feels like it's deeper than that. Like, than, than, than just like a couple premises that are implausible or sloppy. It feels like... I don't know. There's something at the root of how we're approaching it that is just misconfigured to trying to understand reality. Yeah, there is. Th this is the best that I can in this very unprepared moment, um, uh, like describe my my vague feeling of unease about this. There are clear cases of good arguments, valid arguments, sound arguments, and then you have articles like this, um, and you ask. Well, there was nothing in the use of logic that, that to me, thinks that sh should ever get you here. So where is, wh where is the um, misstep? And it feels like it's a compounding of errors where it's like s slightly sloppy premises or like too quick to accept some of the premises. And then you combine that with another premise you're too quick to accept with one that you find so intuitive that you can't believe that anybody would disagree with you. That's sort of like the p-hacking of philosophy where you're like, let me get to this uh, like super controversial, like let it be published conclusion by not showing that any specific step is way off. But like if I have enough error across all of those steps, I can right. get it a pretty fucking crazy thing like why childhood is bad for, for children. children. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. That's probably a good way of looking at it. Because it, um, it's not even that a total disregard for the empirical literature. Like Einstein had some, you know, yeah. way of at least arguing for special rel relativity that was a priori, right? This is the problem of trying to figure out where it goes wrong. It's like there's not a specific, 
easy to pin down way that it goes wrong. Yeah. And yet the result is nonsense. It's just pure nonsense. And so right. uh, what happened? <laughs> right. All right. Right. Uh, yeah. Let's go on to our <laughs> next uh, reason to think that philosophy is totally fucked. Um, we'll be discussing a paper called Why Childhood is Bad for Children. And, um, and then uh, a paper that's a partial response to it, although not exactly. Well, it's part, of the, it's part of the growing literature. It's part of the growing literature. Why adults have to be ch children first. Again, <laughs> not parodies as far as I can tell, but um, you never know. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Dave, Great Courses Plus has real professors, prominent researchers who know how to teach, know how to engage people. As you know, I've been a fan of this company since way back in their cassette days. Um, listening to Robert Greenberg and teach me how to appreciate classical music. But now... That, they're not doing cassettes anymore. They have an app. You can learn anytime, anywhere, on your TV, on your phone, on your iPad, wherever. And there are so many courses to listen to. And, you know, oh boy, they, uh, a course that uh, we've been enjoying is The Great Questions of Philosophy and Physics. And I, I haven't gotten through all of it yet, but it's possible that, uh, we, that we might learn the, and find the resources to respond to the devastating argument from sideways music. Um, this, is, <laughs> this course is presented by Professor Stephen Gimbel, who holds the Distinguished Teaching Chair in the Humanities Department at Gettysburg College. He introduces us to all the brain-melting theories about how the universe works, including space-time, which is now, um, you know, really up for grabs at this point. Uh, yeah, I mean, has he read the, the Sideways Music paper, though? Because until then, like, I don't... <laughs> I, think, I think to be fair to Professor Gimbel, he, he recorded his lectures before that appeared oh, in okay, analysis. Okay. So, so, so you're saying it might be completely outdated. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. Uh, with its vast selection of subjects, Great Courses Plus truly has something for everyone. Russian literature, psychology, astronomy, history, as I said, classical music, and so much more. So sign up for the Great Courses Plus to Day. And guess what? They have a limited time offer for our listeners an entire month for free. So for an entire month for free, for no money, you will have access to any and all the courses on the Great Courses Plus app for the next month completely free. So you have nothing to lose. Don't wait any longer. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash wizards. Um, once again, the great courses plus plus dot com slash wizards. Thanks again to the great courses plus for sponsoring this episode.
welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time where we like to thank our listeners for so many things, including all the different ways they get in touch with us, they communicate with us, their emails, tweets, eh, not as much the Facebook messages because we don't really <laughs> check that. It's really the one thing we don't check. Um, and Instagram, all the different ways that you... Um, interact with us. If you would like to do that, you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can um, tweet at us at peas at Tamler or at verybadwizards for the um, Very Bad Wizards account. You can follow us on Instagram. You can join the always lively conversation on the subreddit. Um, and you can rate us on Apple Podcasts. Um, give us give us some five star reviews. We could, you know, uh, that that will help. That will help us our 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 sense of self respect and our self esteem, and it will um, enable other listeners to find out about us. So, if you like the podcast, please consider rating us. And thank I'm you. I'm okay with four star four star reviews. Yeah, okay with that. yeah. So. <laughs> I, I guess depending on like the content of it. Yeah, three or lower. You know, you're. It's a free country. You can do what you want. <laughs> That's right. We support free speech. <laughs> uh, um, and if you want to support us in more tangible ways, you can. For one, go to our verybadwizards.com uh, and click on our support page, and you'll see all the ways to support us there. Um, you can support us on Patreon. We very, very much appreciate our Patreon patrons for, uh, for your support. Um, you can sign up there for a small per episode donation and you'll get different rewards. You'll get my beats. Um, and what do we have coming up? Do we have anything we got to record something new for our Patreon. We absolutely do. I think we're just very busy right now, but but I um, I have some ideas actually that I want to run by you. I look forward to it because class is in the full swing of things, and all I want to do is watch yeah. something. One thing that they get is access to our Dostoevsky brothers Karamazov. Uh, That's right. That's right. We uh, did a uh, five-part series on the Brothers Karamazov, and uh, we're proud of it. And if you are a $5 and up patron, you will get access to that for free in the feed. If not, you can go uh, to, I guess the best way to do it is to go to the Himalaya app. Find it on the iTunes or Android store, and you can have access. You can pay on sort of just ad hoc, pay $5 to get just our five-part series, or you can also sign up and have access to all the content on Himalaya. And our patrons get a 90-day free That's right. a promotion. That's all right. of them, not, uh, the, not just the $5 and up subscribers. That's right. That's right. Oh, and... Um, we never say this, but you also get ad-free episodes for right. supporting us at any level and access to all of our previous bonus episodes. Yeah, that's something that we don't, you know, we, we assume you've been supporting us for years already. But if you're, yeah. uh, if you're somebody who is looking to sign up and support us for the first time, we have a whole bunch of uh, back episodes where we discuss things we love and we even bring on uh, special guests Um 
like when Tamler has to uh, talk uh, about Ouch. shit that I haven't watched. <laughs> David Lynch. <laughs> David Lynch stuff that I haven't watched or if he gets tired of talking to me about Star Trek. <laughs> um, so yeah, so there's a treasure trove of stuff that we've poured our heart into because yeah. we appreciate our all of our Patreon supporters. You don't have to sound sarcastic. About that. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> there's a veritable treasure trove. <laughs> it's a fucking cornucopia of content. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, you can also go to our merchandise page. You can uh, get uh, these awesome T-shirts with a wonderful design, um, some of the softest T-shirts, some of the softest material I've ever touched in my life. Um, but it's also getting chilly here, and you might uh, might be wherever you live. You can get a sweatshirt or a hoodie. Those are also awesome. Um, we appreciate uh, every time we see somebody tweet to us that they are wearing one of our shirts. Makes makes me feel very proud inside. Um, so uh, thank you to everybody for all the ways in which you support us. And without further ado, let's get back to philosophy. <laughs> what are we <laughs> discussing? <laughs> philosophy in quotes. <laughs> By the way, have you seen this thing on Twitter just today, we're recording this on the night of the battling town halls between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And there's this big movement on Twitter to like turn on ABC and watch Biden so that he wins the ratings war. Cause otherwise oh, Trump will like brag about like he, uh, he, that he has better ratings. I did not. Luckily, I luckily I've had meetings for most of the day and have not tr seen Twitter at all. And now I'm just extra. <laughs> I mean, so I so I take it that you think that this is a good thing. This is like, the, it's it's just <laughs> like a sign again that there's something fun. There's something fundamentally rotten about our country. It's not just oh, like we need to vote this candidate out or this candidate in. Like it's there's something like it's 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 it reminds me of this problem where. There's something just off There's a, at the core of it, fundamentally unsound about what what what's going on right now. It is it is funny that you know this is something you've pointed out. Um, plenty of people have, I guess, that we we keep trying to find the thing that's finally gonna <laughs> nail Trump, and it's like okay, okay, okay. Everybody watch ABC. <laughs> well, no, right. Hey, well, it, <laughs> that's exactly right. It's like uh, the person who is trying to write the paper that finally shows that the zombie argument is <laughs> unsound and will just put an end to the literature. That's like the person who thinks, well, this Ukraine thing, that's the thing that will sink Trump. You know, it's like, yeah, no, that's not how this works. And the problem is deeper. The way that it works in, in philosophy is the person who writes that paper saying, I'm finally going to put to rest the zombie argument ends up um, as a statistic um, of how many times the zombie paper was cited as a metric of its strength. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> the analogy is like very, like, it's actually like really insightful, I think, <laughs> because <laughs> it's, it's, it's on two levels. Number one, obviously this won't be the thing. There's one thing that could end Trump, yeah. which is that he gets elected out of office. That's the only thing. But but there's also it's like but the problem is deeper. Like even when that happens, the fact that we're we are where we are and that people are thinking about politics in this way, tune in to ABC to help Trump get out of office, like is the way that you're like that there's something like 
wrong about the whole approach, the whole way we're going uh, about things? It is absurd that a, a statement like that, tune into ABC so that Trump gets worse ratings, that is this not like perfectly the capitalist dystopia that has been described in so many works of fiction. <laughs> like we fail to even see it as such anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, insane. Well, so on to our next paper that makes me feel, yeah, despair. <laughs> despair for my own field. This is, this is a paper that was brought to my attention by someone on Twitter called at uh, error theorist goes by the name of John. I don't know if, I don't think he has, he, I think he wants to be mostly anonymous and he tweets a lot of um, kind of cynical things about philosophy. I, I can't go to his Twitter feed right now because I'm on freedom. I banned myself <laughs> after I got caught up and swept up in the, the, that whole thing. But um, anyway, it's an article called Why Childhood is Bad for Children by Sarah Hanan. Um, this is the Journal of Applied Philosophy, which is which I can't speak to the quality of this journal, but um, the paper that's partly in response to it by um, by Efrat Ram Tikhtin and Nathaniel Lipschitz: Why adults have to be children first? Why adults have to be children first? That is published in the Journal of Value Inquiry, which is a very uh, well-respected journal of, in ethics. And, and, and that one just came out. Yeah, that one just came out. So I'm assuming that this paper by, uh, and the Journal of Applied Philosophy is fairly well-respected itself. I just don't happen to know about it. Uh, anyway, let me read the abstract of the Sarah Hanan paper. This article asks whether being a child is, all things considered, good or bad for children. I defend a predicament view of childhood which regards childhood as bad overall for children. I argue that four features of childhood make it regrettable. Impaired capacity for practical reasoning, lack of an established practical identity, a need to be dominated, weird, and a profound <laughs> and asymmetric vulnerability. I consider recent claims in the literature that childhood is good for children. So she's already, she's just contributing to an established literature about whether childhood is good or bad for children. Since it allows them to enjoy special goods that aren't available in adulthood or which are harder to access in adulthood. I raise some difficulties for these claims. Then I argue that whatever version of these views survives my criticism will not establish that childhood is overall good for children. This is because the goods of childhood aren't significant enough to weigh, outweigh the bad features associated with being a child. I conclude by suggesting that the badness of childhood for children means that we are likely to owe more to children than adults. So all you people who thought we don't know anything to the children, because fuck them, <laughs> they're children, this, uh, like the other, that made you doubt uh, the theory of relativity. Uh, <laughs> this one. Uh, this well, paradoxically, one, but, if she's if she's successful, then we'll give children a bunch of shit, and then it'll actually be good to be a child. No, actually, I don't think that's right because she is arguing for the intrinsic badness uh, of being a child, and a lot and a lot of her things are not we can't fix by we can just assuage it a little bit, like give them yeah, a little more right. candy on Halloween. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, scruff their hair and tell them they're good boys. Let me, before we get into the argument here, 
I want to ask you, so unlike the last one where it was hard to pin down like what the problem of the paper or of, of just the debate was, mm-hmm. here I would suggest that one problem is thinking about children as a monolithic group and, and coming to a conclusion of whether childhood, broadly speaking, is good for children. That there's something actually like deeply misconceived about thinking of, uh, you know, value in this way, ethics in this way. This paper is addressing an issue that can't be addressed in my view, in general and abstract terms, it has to be addressed by knowing like the conditions of specific children and what they face. Um, okay, so so just to to um, defend her approach, in order to clarify what you're saying, what she's trying to do is point to features of childhood that she thinks really are universal across all children, whether or not. Um, they are empirically, I guess, she's just not like going to cover. She's just thinking, she thinks here are like whatever, eight things that characterize childhood. It's not that you think that that step, that you can't have that. It's, if I'm reading you right, it's that you think that even if you said these are eight universal features of childhood, that those eight universal features of childhood could not be said to be good or bad without understanding the complexities of of like the various kinds of situations that those children are in. So the very same universal feature could be good in one case and bad in another case. Yeah, I'm saying that, so you're making a distinction between children and adults here, for example, right? But you're not making a distinction between different kinds of children, different children who grow up in this way or and children who grow up in that way. And I'm saying that's not a defensible place to draw the line. The line has to be drawn in a much more narrow way, that there's really little to no value of discussing whether childhood in general is bad for children in general. It really just has to do with the specific nature of a way a child is brought up. And it's not that she ignores, you know, the the types of things that can happen to children, but just approaching the question this way, it's a little like the problem I have with antinatalism, right? Like they want to make the claim that it's always bad to be alive. And I think that's, you can't just lump all human beings together and say anything that momentous about them. I, okay, like it sounds, but it sounds like you're not disagreeing though that there are these universal features of childhood. It's more that you think that they that the universal sort of category of children is where where it's like, shouldn't yeah. be applied. Never mind right. like the different ages of being a child and all of that, which no distinction yeah. is being made here. There's also just the vastly different conditions <laughs> under which children are raised that I think you can't just glide over to make a statement now. The, the second issue you might have is just what does it fucking mean? And she addresses this so we can look yeah. at that to say that childhood is bad for children. Like that's just part of a human life. And that, you know, to say that, like, I feel like that's a, that's a harder issue to know what's wrong with because I, like I could see someone saying like being like an elderly person sucks, you know? So why yeah. can't you say it about it being a child? But there is something about just the fact that 
adulthood, which is the thing that's held as better, like you have to get through childhood first to get there. That <laughs> is, that makes this. These are, these, uh, these are the kind of details that don't matter for them. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I know that this is just sort of being clever in some sense, but being saying childhood is good or bad for children is, you know, I'm like, well, it, it just is what it is. <laughs> like, childhood just is what it means to be a child. Um, like, it, like, it's like that saying, youth, youth is wasted on the young. Like, that's, that's, only, that's like clever, but it's not. Well, yeah. but I feel like there's more wisdom to that claim than there is <laughs> to anything that's going on here. And I want to note, because she does recognize that somebody might have these problems. Um, she says this, uh, the lives of children vary immensely. Children's capacities ordinarily develop over time, and particularly, in particular, children's natural and social circumstances vary hugely. As a result, some children are much better off than others. But there are also features of childhood conceived of as a series of developmental stages that are common to all children, albeit present to different degrees. Um, the question here is whether these general and definitive features of childhood make childhood, all things considered, good or bad for children as a class. I, I think that while you can, it's an intelligible couple of sentences there, I think it's ultimately incoherent. Good or bad uh, for I, children as a class, these general and definitive features of childhood. But I agree that that's something that needs unpacking if i'm going to say yeah that. i mean there's not it's not like i think that it will turn on what those features are and whether they are so like i it just seems to me like look all things being equal having having a splinter in your foot is a bad thing some people are super rich and good looking and have a splinter in their foot so their life isn't bad some people are miserable and poor and have a splinter in their foot and that makes their life even worse but it doesn't seem to me that weird to say we can agree that having a splinter on your foot, all things in your foot, all things being equal is a bad thing for people. Right. And, and that's all she seems to be saying here. But but it would be a little weirder to say that something that you had to do as part of being a human being is bad. You know? Yeah. Like but, yeah. something like yeah. sleeping is bad for adults or um, you know, eating is bad for adults or something like that, which I take to be more analogous to this than the splinter. It's like this phase right. of human development, something that is part of our biology is bad for us. There's something strange about that. Maybe it's that, I don't know, I take a more holistic, maybe virtue ethics view of like where you have to assess like a life and not just an individual uh, aspect you you need context to know whether the, well, some individual aspect is good or bad, but I don't know. Yeah, but even even like the other part that you're saying that the, the fact that you have to get through childhood is what raised the red flag for me as putting this in the same class as some of the other things uh, that we were discussing. Which is normally when you want to make an argument about goodness or badness, and again she covers this, but. Um, you're doing it because you think you have a shot of making a difference in the goodness or badness of someone's life. And in a journal of applied philosophy, you would think that that's, that's sort of what you're, you're trying to do. You're trying to like, I love that this is applied philosophy. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you, you know, you want to say like, let's, let's 
all right, then let's get rid of childhood. But you you know that that's impossible. So it's like, well, what's the point of saying childhood is bad? Well, she she, she what she says is we owe a little more to them. But like, mm. in what sense? Like, we have to be nicer to children. Like, you should be nice to children anyway, right? Has like, she, have you been? A, not, have you been a dick this whole time? <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Maybe because that's of, why it's bad. <laughs> this isn't a reason to like treat children better than you already do. I. I like right. unless I well this is I right, guess the, this is the this is the argument okay yeah so she says right. lastly it's important to get clear what I mean by goodness and badness for children this article considers whether the state of being a child conduces to children's well-being that is whether childhood is instrumentally and non-instrumentally prudentially valuable. I assume that good the goodness and badness of children's lives doesn't entirely reduce to their experiences of it. A condition can be bad for someone without them recognizing this. It can be bad for them even when they think it's good. Children's experiences of childhood count as evidence for and contribute to the objective goodness of badness of childhood for them, but these experiences aren't the whole story. This is another one of those paragraphs where it sounds like you're saying something substantive and coherent, but like... Are we now clear what you mean by goodness and badness of children based on what you well, how you I define think this it? Is, okay, yeah. so let's let's yes. turn to her actual um, uh, <laughs> claims, right? So the first one she starts with is uh, let's turn to the first of the alleged unique or exclusive goods of childhood: sexual innocence. <laughs> Which honestly, I never thought of that as like. <laughs> I don't know. It's like the, the the major, like the first thing to list on the things of the thing. What's good about you? But uh, she says, I find this claim puzzling, which is is nowadays taken for argument in philosophy journals. I find this claim puzzling and think advocates of this view owe a clear explanation of what they mean by sexual innocence and why it's valuable. In the absence of such I mean, an explanation, I agree with that. Like, if if people are arguing. That, yeah. that childhood is good because of sexual innocence. I I also find that claim puzzling and think <laughs> advocates of this view owe a clearer explanation for why they <laughs> what they mean by sexual innocence. Why yeah. It's bad. Yeah. So uh, so she says it can't be the claim can't be that children are asexual because children do exhibit sexuality even at young ages. Denying this disrespects children by failing to recognize them for who they are. Um, <laughs> I I can't like how is that sentence in there it disrespects them by failing to like you need that you you see the Kantian like the Kantian comes out (laughs) in all sorts of weird ways but that's like one right there only a Kantian would write that sentence so children are sexual don't tell me they're not denying it disrespects the children for fail to recognize by failing to recognize them who they are and it leaves them vulnerable because their allegedly distinct and innocent natures are fetishized as alluringly different. So, so you're actually making them hotter to pedophiles <laughs> by claiming that they're innocent. That's like the argument. The argument is like you're making it worse for them by claiming that they're innocent when they actually are just... Here, let me read this paragraph. Note that the thought that children are less sexually burdened than adults might be driven by contingently bad norms and practices regarding adult sexuality. Um, many adults are sexually aware in ways that distract and frustrate them. So this is one thing she, she, one part of her argument is she says, look, granting that a kind of sexual, like not being burdened by all these like sexual complexities of being an adult human being, maybe that would be good in one sense 
if you were a child. And maybe it was better for you if you were a child. But that's only because social conditions being what they are, like adults have to like repress their sexuality in all sorts of unhealthy ways. We could fix that. That's not an intrinsically good thing about being a child. It's just a contingently bad thing about being an adult. Right. The opposite of innocence is some sort of guilt. So you think if you think poorly of sexuality, then you then maybe that's reflected in your belief that sexual innocence is such a good thing. And so maybe you should check. I mean, what she's saying is maybe you should check yourself and your attitudes towards sexuality. But I get confused because then she uh, says one might insist that even after we improve our sexual norms, there will still be regrettable aspects of adult sexuality that children are spared. While this might be true, I'm unconvinced that it suffices to render children's undeveloped sexuality good for them. So they do have undeveloped sexuality, but then she goes on to argue that they don't. They actually are fully sexual. And so I'm not, this whole section actually confused me. Um, yeah, this is very strange. Yeah, and it was a weird way to start it off because I, unless there's plenty of people who talk about this as being like the number one, like <laughs> the sine qua non of childhood is like not knowing why you have a boner. <laughs> like, <laughs> So then she, right, she says, perhaps childhood children have sexual urges and some sort of sexual lives, but their sexual innocence inheres in the fact that they lack knowledge regarding sexual matters. This lack of knowledge may be what some people think frees children in the ways mentioned above. If so, I disagree. Lacking knowledge is often instrumentally bad for us. A lack of knowledge concerning human sexuality leaves children extremely asymmetrically vulnerable, especially when combined with the other features of their psychology and the power dynamics that necessarily pervade their lives. And then sometimes children are simply unaware of certain sexual realities, but they also often hold false beliefs. In addition to the instrumental bads this can generate, I think it is also always non-instrumentally bad for us to hold false beliefs. Right. That so turns... Is, that that's a big part of like uh, many of her arguments is like when you say, well, you're protecting children from like the ugliness of the world, but then you're basically saying that they have false beliefs and it sounds like she is actually Kantian sympathetic and thinks that that in and of itself is intrinsically bad. Like to have a uh, right. false representation of the world is such an evil that it trumps um, the good that might come of like not knowing that people get tortured and killed or like not knowing about the suffering that's yeah. going on. Not like, knowing that that guy at the grocery store actually wants to fuck you even though you're eight years old. Exactly. That's and a like, non-instrumental bad to not know that. And and so like, again, it's like, so what you're really actually saying is if I could give whatever my eight-year-old son the awareness that there are people who want to fuck him, then... Um, this would be a better thing? Well, like, it's just an instrumental, be I mean, an intrinsic good that might be outweighed by the instrumental bad things about it. Um, I think that's yeah. what she would say, that there's these things have to be weighed against each other. But it is weird also because, you know, earlier what she said about, well, if adults are so burdened by their sexuality, that's just because of our norms and our bad practices. And, and But these things that she's saying about children also are definitely something that could be part of our bad practices of <laughs> right. sexualizing children and could be reformed right. too. So it right. really doesn't speak to, there is this weird waffling between I'm talking, you know, you can say this stuff about, you know, being like what <laughs> sucks for adults, but that's just like, we could just reform our practices. That's not intrinsic to being an adult. 
But then there's, but then she doesn't hold that same standard to some of the childhood things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah. It's it's um it's a a mishmash of arguing in a way that like doesn't seem tight to me, at least in this section. Because she also in this has to argue against adulthood being bad, and so <laughs> yeah. often what she does there is talk about well, that's just a, you know a contingent. Thing that right. we could fix by improving our social world, um, but you. But then, if you're going to say that about adults, you have to also be willing to apply that to children. But uh, but you're right that it is it, weird yeah. that it's this like it starts the paper. It's like the first yeah. part of the argument. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> we can move on um, to the next thing: privileged access to common goods claim. Uh, she says. What about openness to future possibilities and play? Are these goods of childhood? It would be false to suggest that play and openness to future experiences are uniquely good for children or exclusively available to them. So she's tackling the exclusivity part. So, you know, adults can play. Basically what she says, adults can play and adults have openness to their future. So um, so there is nothing about childhood uh, that makes you have uh, exclusive access to these things. Yes. But again, that's the same thing that I was just talking about before. It's true that in theory, adults could be just as carefree, just as open to the future. But that's not the way the world works. And but that's not it's if if you were going to play it that way, that like it doesn't matter what the actual reality is for adults, then you have to play it that way for the children too. what the actual reality is. Right. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is also sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, Tamler, I don't know about you, but I find my happiness to be a little bit challenging as of late. <laughs> yeah, and we're adults, you know. We're not. We don't even suffer the disvalue of being children. You know. <laughs> that's that's right. Um, that's right. If you are feeling like something is interfering with your happiness, or if you are just feeling any kind of general malaise or suffering from depression or extra stress or anxiety during these times, if you're having trouble sleeping, um, if you have anger problems or family conflicts, BetterHelp is there for you. BetterHelp is um, a service that will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Uh, in under 24 hours of signing up, you can be communicating with somebody uh, with a licensed professional counselor who specializes in one of the areas that might help you specifically. You can talk to them through text. You can talk to them through phone or even video chat. You can send a message to a counselor anytime and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. You can even schedule weekly sessions all without ever having to leave the comfort of your own home. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if for some reason you don't like the counselor you've been assigned to. Anything you share with them is, of course, confidential because, again, these are licensed professional therapists. It's affordable. Um, they can match you with uh, financial aid if you have uh, trouble paying. Um, and it's convenient. And if you doubt any of this, if you want to hear people talk about how much BetterHelp has helped them, you can check out the testimonials that they post daily on their website. So 
if you think BetterHelp might help you as a listener of Very Bad Wizards, you'll get 10% off of your first month by visiting betterhelp.com VBW. So join over 800,000 people who are taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash VBW. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. So she goes on to say, um, she's, she's again arguing, she says, I'm unconvinced that most of these goods are necessarily more accessible to children than adults. Adults and children generally lead different sorts of lives in contemporary Western cultures. Children do, on average, have more fun. However, the important issue for our purposes is whether this is a product of essential features of childhood or of socially contingent practices. My view is that adults and children are fundamentally more similar in nature than many assume, and that it's often our conventions that set us apart. I mean, Um, there's a way in which I could find myself agreeing with that, but then not in a way that would make, that would help her argument. Right. Children do on, I like the children do on average have more fun. Like there's every a, time the stu- I read, that study. I, I, I know. I, every time I read a claim like that, I'm like, man, you could at least toss in a fake footnote, you know, like a, just like, you just don't just say it. Like, like, in fact, they're probably like, like by her very argument, like children, there's probably tons of children who are having miserable, miserable times and tons of adults are having fun. That's um, where the average though comes in. Yeah, On average, right. if you sum total the fun, Um, of all children and all adults, you would find that children have a higher mean, you know? Uh, Yeah. P equals (laughs) 0.001. So it's a pretty strong result. It is. Um, In discussing imagination, McLeod claims that it's much harder for adults to create quote-unquote complex make-believe worlds because, quote, reaching a threshold of cognitive maturity and acquiring true beliefs about the world involves a loss of innocence and irrecoverably changes our capacity for carefree imaginative play. So then she says, I have no decisive arguments countering this empirical claim, (laughs) but it seems to me that many adults have strong interests in and are able to engage in vivid acts of imagination and extended play. Think about the popularity of fantasy novels, television shows, movies, and games for adults. The demand for fan fiction, live action role play, Comic Con, and cosplay amongst adults also comes immediately to mind. Sexual fantasy <laughs> just comes plays to a mind role. immediately. <laughs> uh, I, but this is so much is like imp- Im- empirical, like but, uh, claims by assertion. So on the one hand, she's like. No, I know. Children have more fun. And then she's like, uh, and no, I know. Like, uh, adults have just as much imagination. Right. Like, this is not, this is this not is the way to build an argument. It's like, waffling. Like, again, it's that thing of like, well, yes, adults don't have fun, but that's just contingent versus yeah. actually we do have a lot of fun. Like, look at all those, like, I don't know, Buffy slash fiction. And you'll <laughs> those see. Those people are miserable. They, <laughs> they're miserable. <laughs> and they're I love fun. this. Parents are often keen to, quote, help their children with science experiments in order to get their hands dirty and create something. I like, why is, why is helping oh, yeah. quotes? What, what's the relevance of that? <laughs> that like, yeah, we do. We can have fun. I think the point right. is here that all of what they're saying about children could be true about adults and often is true about adults. Um, yeah. Like, yes, we could like play and imagination and open-ended stuff and, uh, Look, they play sports and are motivated, but so do adults. Like, adults play sports recreationally. I just played tennis a couple days ago. I think we know enough about, like, mammalian development to know that play just is 
like one of those things that's biologically important in early ages. And, you know, like, I don't know, stick to one kind of argument. Like, of course, we can go out of our way to have more fun, but we can also go out of our way to be less perverted. And, you know, I, I don't know. It's just a I, whole lot of nothing. And also, like, I think that you really do, if you're going to make this argument, you have to go with, like, the reality of what's happening. And it is harder yeah. as an adult. It's not impossible. And I agree adults should do it more. I've done my best to still have like a playful attitude towards life and imaginative attitude. It was much easier when Eliza was like five or six yeah. years old. Then you can really, uh, you know, indulge that side of you. But then now that she's a teenager and me doing that would be weird. All the <laughs> stuff I used to do with like her dolls right. and her things like <laughs> then like yeah it's harder that sucks this is what the yeah. toy story movies are about like that's like you know like <laughs> yeah, yeah, you right. get to a certain age and that stuff is no longer that's right. has its appeal but the fact that you watch the toy story movie is evidence that you also like yeah. to engage in imaginative play <laughs> so so i'm arguing arguing every conceivable argument and i went to um, comic-con uh, dressed as a spy <laughs> And I'd have sexual role play. Um, <laughs> also trust us. Yeah. I imagine I'm good. <laughs> um, all right. So I feel like we should just move on to the bad stuff. Um, she says that there are some aspects of, of childhood that are essential features of childhood that are just bad. The first one is just basically saying children are dumb. Impaired practical reasoning. Like when they want stuff, they don't know how to get it. Like this frustrates them. It can be internally frustrating. And even when children don't realize that they're making errors, they will be less efficient in getting what's good for them. This is objectively bad for children's well-being. Um, although, I, honestly, given the physical limitations of being a child, uh, one could argue that their obvious, uh, in, like their obvious inability to do this well makes adults do it extra well for them. So like- right. You're a kid and you get fed three times a day without having to lift a finger. Right. <laughs> yeah. This might actually put you in a pretty, pretty nice position. This is where like she gets kind of empirical, not like citing studies, yeah. but like other aspects of practical reasoning that often elude children include risk assessment and probability estimation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like it's like the yes, that's true for some you know, like more for some, like there's definitely some children, especially if you're calling children, you know, like 12, 13 years old that are better than that. And some adults, uh, I don't know. I, it's, it's, yeah. Okay. I feel like she could write a book where each chapter is just uh, the age of the child and how bad childhood is for you. <laughs> Finally. Like when, when you're one, it's kind of shit, but it's not that bad because like they feed you and they take care of you. Like you when don't you're have four theory or five, of you're like, anyway. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, childhood is characterized by oh, impaired sorry. emotional regulation, which also yeah. impacts brain. Um, so she thinks that, yeah, this isn't to deny that our emotions can play a positive role in our reasoning. However, it's harder. <sighs> <laughs> we just don't have the heart. We don't have the heart for this. <laughs> this is less fun than I thought because, <laughs> because it's a lot of the same kinds of uh, frustrating style of argumentation. Well, but uh, should we talk about this practical identity? Because um, this is getting closer to saying something possibly interesting, if maybe yeah. deeply wrong. I don't know. 
Um, children's agency is also hindered by their lack of a stable practical identity. Children have less developed views on who they want to be and where they stand on a variety of important issues than adults. While children have aims, these aims often don't issue from an authoritative and settled pattern of projects and values. As a result, their aims are likely to be incoherent, conflict with one another, and change frequently. <laughs> this is all like, this all sounds great to me so far. Dude, but... like honestly, it's... <laughs> It's. It seems to me that that um, having less developed views about where you stand on a variety of important issues is, but like a good thing in many many cases. Yes. Um. And and having a stable, settled pattern of projects and values is is one of the things that I fight against <laughs> as an adult. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And like, it go, again, it goes against that. Well, adults can be imaginative and have open-ended futures and all like, no, like you can't say yeah. both of these things. Right. And also, right. and yeah. And, but, but here she's just saying that this is bad and this seems not only good about being a child, but also kind of the essence of what it is to be a child is that like, you're still forming who you are. Like that's part yeah. of like the excitement of growing up is discovering that. And this just is, this reads to me at like by the end, like a list of things that the author values as part of living a good life. And the only thing that makes it an argument about whether being a child is bad versus being an adult is whether she's willing to accept like the flexibility that adults can adopt the good parts of childhood or that yeah. children can like actually, or, you know, that either children can be more adult like in some of these ways or that some of, you know, the, like what I would say is some of these childlike qualities that are intrinsic childhood actually aren't bad. They're good, but it just reads like a list of, of values. So I think that's a really important point in a way, like an important way to understand why this is like deeply the wrong approach is you could take these things as just features of a good life that she's arguing yeah. for and features of a bad life. And then it would be like, we can argue over like, is this really a feature of a good life or not or what, but to make it about ch being right. a child versus being an adult kind of drains it of the insight that it might offer about the question that actually makes sense. It's coherent question. Like what are the features of living a good life? What are some features of living a bad life? Um, right. Yeah. Like, so, so for example, like the, the, do the domination, right. That you're like at the whim of adults. There's, there's, I think, decent philosophy on on this already, like, you know, on how much agency matters to your well-being mm -hmm. and how sometimes having too much agency is is not as good as you might think. And that just seems true no matter what, like, no matter what. It doesn't have anything to do with... Yeah. Being, having <laughs> autonomy is good. It's a good thing. It's not good if you're, like, a three-year-old, though, and you're, like, in the middle yeah. of, like, a shopping mall... And you have to decide like how to get home and feed yourself. Like, but it's a good thing in general. Not having somebody like have dominion over you is a good thing in general. Autonomy is a good thing. It's a good feature of like a job is that they grant you autonomy. But like right. when you divide the world into children and adults, it feels like you're eliding over like the differences that actually matter, which is the kind of society that you want to have the kind of i don't know workplace rules that you allow and what um you know like this is 
in a different version of this paper, you could this could be an argument against certain capitalist structures where people are free and not under dominion in one sense, but not in another sense. They still have to go to their job, which they hate, but they can't afford to lose, and their boss can treat them like shit. And um, right. and oh. there, there's no way out of that unless they to, star- <laughs> to starve to death. That seems or, to be something or, worth discussing. Yeah, yeah. Not whether children are being oppressed by being children, but whether like a a, a worker in an Amazon path factory is being oppressed because they're right. they're beholden right. to this person. But then you wouldn't. But then you wouldn't have the sexy childhood is bad for children uh, title. <laughs> And you, but although, by the way, get like, uh, hear me out here. This might actually be uh, paid propaganda by um, Apple to uh, convince people that uh, treating children as adults is a good thing, so that they can actually hire them to build iPhones in China. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're increasing their well-being sure. by pushing them out of childhood. Yes. <laughs> So then she says, part of this owes to our granting families so much privacy and parents so much discretion over their children's lives, the fact that adults have so much power over children. However, even if we alter these institutions, children will be necessarily susceptible to the arbitrary whims of those who care for them, just as a slave is to a benevolent master. Holding such power over a slave is illegitimate. Whereas parental power is legitimate to the extent that it's deployed in the children's interest. Nevertheless, this power to control still con- constitutes domination, and the need for it is a bad making feature of childhood. Yes, it would be better for children to be dominated than left to their own devices. Surely it's better to not require domination at all. But not if you're a fucking child. That's the freaking point. That's right? The point. Like, yeah. All, yeah. Like, th- Better comp- like hol- holistically, look like reptiles hatch and they walk around and they leave their parents. Like, yeah, is that <laughs> they're not suckers? They don't have to be dominated. <laughs> uh, I don't know, Tamler. I'm lo- I'm losing my energy with this paper. Last thing about this paper: if childhood okay. is so bad for children, one might conclude that children can be treated in a plethora of unsavory ways, provided it helps to emancipate them from childhood by speeding their transition into adulthood. This is what you were saying about the, the Chinese iPhone argument. Yeah, um, I think we have some reasons to hasten children's development. However, there are good arguments. Uh, adherence of the negative conception of childhood can use to resist the conclusion that this be done by using children as a mere means to their future adult selves. You're right. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do, I can't do this. <laughs> I, I just can't. Uh, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> far from supporting the mistreatment of children, the predicament view pushes strongly in the opposite direction. Our duties toward children are ordinarily more stringent than those we have toward adults because precisely because of children's subjection to the bads of childhood. I, I, I like this paper broke broke me. <laughs> broke, broke me too. <laughs> I mean, did anybody ever think that children like did they come into this thinking, you know what I really need is an argument for why we should be good to children? And the way that I want you to get there, just tell me how fucked up and shitty children childhood is. Just in and, and start with sexuality. Go. <laughs> I feel like this is 
It's a way of preserving the status quo. Somehow, like, the Trumps of the world are going to, like, be able to stay in power. The real estate magnets, the corporations, like, the freaking Zuckerbergs of the world. They're going to be able to stay in power because this is what people are talking about. Can we You're briefly... on a Chapo Trap House vibe this, uh, this episode. You're on I, a real. I try, try. I try. <laughs> Why adults have to be children first in the Journal of Value inquiry, inquiry? Can we just talk briefly about this? Recent, in, this is the opening paragraph. I don't know if we have to go beyond this, but um, recent interest in the value of childhood has raised several interrelated questions. <laughs> is the state of childhood intrinsically valuable or only instrumentally valuable in order to achieve a state of adulthood? <laughs> What are the features that give childhood its intrinsic or instrumental value or disvalue? And whatever the value of childhood may be, is childhood inferior or superior to the state of adulthood? Although the answers to these questions have significant moral and practical implications with regard to what is owed to children by adults and how adults ought to raise children, we will not attempt <laughs> to address those more practical aspects of the issue. They just spent a paragraph telling us that they weren't yeah. going to talk about something. Wait, no, but it's this. It's the premise. Although the answers to these questions have significant moral and practical <laughs> implications. <laughs> like, if there's anything, this is like the last one. If there's anything that those that the, that work doesn't have is practical implications. <laughs> it, it has, like, deep intrinsic interest more than it has practical implications. It is like I'm groundbreaking of, I'm to, work before it has practical implications. Yeah. Ha, like I'm trying to think of what a single thing that I would do differently raising a child after having read that paper. <laughs> Just I, recognize, oh man, it sucks that you don't have a practical identity. You know? <laughs> Look at so, you not sticking to any of your values. You don't even know if you're a Republican or a Democrat. <laughs> Sorry that you have all this sexual innocence that actually is bad for you that leads you to have false beliefs. Here, let me show you this uh, snuff film so that you have non-instrumentally non good true beliefs about like right. how like fucked the up contingent, uh, it's, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to, to do anything other than the intrinsic good of showing you exactly what the world is like. So let me peel back this curtain. <laughs> and show you <laughs> beheading videos on liveleak.com <laughs> so that you're never you never think this world is good <laughs> um, but but so I, we can't talk about this paper but let me no. just say that one of the the thing that it ends up being isn't really about that question but whether like <laughs> it all it, it always comes down to a pill like if you could yeah. give somebody a pill that would just make them an adult like, would that be good? Like, should we do that? You know, this isn't, they admit yeah. this isn't practical because we can't as yet do that. But if we could, <laughs> would that be a good thing? Fast forward them through childhood. They don't even have to experience anything at all. Just skip, skip the chapter, go to the next chapter. You know, like what people used to do with Finding yeah. Nemo. They wouldn't show the first thing where the mother gets <laughs> the killed. distressed, um, or what they're probably going to do through the two chapters of this episode. <laughs> um, Kant. Is their Again, answer Kant. no? Because Kant, because yeah. Kant, but they also think it's like they think Kant this, but we show that Kant that. Ah, uh, well, I'm glad. I'm glad we know. I've. Been <laughs> 
I will stop funding the development of the adult pill.